Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. It's about time to get started with the question part of our session, uh, but first a little about upcoming SACFA session. Uh, next week, City Councilor Rob Miyashiro will speak to the title, Lethbridge has a detailed dog bylaw. How about cats? And I think I will bring my dog next week because he might have some input to that. Sure. <laughs> now, more information related to our talk today can be found on SACPA's website. Uh, Alan has a very long presentation from the university that I believe will be on the website. And you can hear the audio of this one. In past sessions, participate in online commentary, and there's a suggestion box outside where you contribute your ideas for speakers or any other aspect of SACPA. Today we've learned about a potential source of energy for the future. Our speaker is Dr. Alan Offenberger. Please come back to the podium, Alan, in anticipation of some thought-provoking questioners. And uh, questioners, please get ready to come to the microphone. Remember to state your name. Uh, keep your comments brief, your questions succinct, and just one or two at a time. Uh, Alan and I are both 76, and we can't remember that much. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Beth. Thank you very much for your presentation. <clears throat> I can remember in junior high where we were told all about fission and fusion. And uh, fusion was seen as something that was impossible at the time. So this is very exciting stuff. Oh, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Uh, I have two questions. Um, one is, I'd like you to talk, tell us more about what solid state means. And the second question is, we've talked a lot about um, nuclear, nuclear, um, the, the disposal of the nuclear waste. What are we going to do with that? And now that you've talked about the sun being mainly fusion, not fission. We were always told it was fission. Anyway, so what would happen if we sent the nuclear waste in the nose cone of a rocket to the sun? Okay. In fact, could I answer the uh, question uh, even more straightforwardly? If we built a fusion system on Earth, we could destroy it right here. We wouldn't have to send it to the sun. And uh, let me... Uh, that um, yeah when I talk about fusion applications in this slide uh, with fusion remember the output of fusion reaction is helium and neutrons the neutrons I can use to do all kinds of things uh, medical applications diagnostics uh, and so on 
but I be, the fact that I've got them, I can use them to transmute the radioactive waste that had been produced in fission plants to make them into harmless things and get additional energy out as well. And in fact, if you go back 50 years ago, more than that, in the 1950s, Atomic Energy of Canada first started looking at fusion, not for fusion per se, but just to get fusion as a source of neutrons that could breed fuel or burn up these, uh, these radioactive waste from fission, but to multiply the fission scheme in a so-called hybrid, fission-fusion hybrid. So one, that is one possible way to do it. But it's the fact that you get neutrons out of fusion and neutrons can do so much valuable stuff. So I would argue don't invest all that heavy uh, plate to send the stuff up to the sun, build a fusion plant and use the neutrons here to transmute the radioactive waste. Solid state. Solid state. <clears throat> uh, in the world of lasers, uh, we have, there's gas vapor lasers. Uh, for example, if I take uh, uh, fluorescent lighting, the, the kind of discharge you have in a fluorescent tube, but instead of what I put in there, if I were to put in things like helium and neon, or other gases, argon and so on, and run a discharge through those different gases, I can produce different lacing wavelengths. I can make a, a real laser system out of those gas discharges. So that's the gas. The next level is chemical lasers based on liquids. I can actually optically pump certain liquids to produce yet other laser wavelengths. Well, the third variation is to go to solids. So I've got gas, liquids, and solids. In the case of solids, the way we build most, in the past historically, build most solid-state lasers is to take either a glass substrate, ordinary silica, uh, or, <coughs> um, uh, um, or, or sapphire, but other, uh, other materials, and sapphire being one of them, and dope them with a little bit of impurity, like 1% or 2% impurity. And that's how I get a solid-state laser, because if I take a rod of it, um, and like a neodymium laser, I've taken basically a glass rod, and I've doped it uniformly with uh, bits of neodymium ions. I put it in an optical cavity, and I put flash lamps around it, and I use the flash lamp excitation to absorb into that glass substrate, and it excites the neo neodymium. And then when they decay, they put out these optical photons. And with my mirrors at the end, the photons that happen to go back and forth pass through that rod many times and get amplified. And that's how I get a higher power output. But it's a solid state laser because the basic lacing medium itself is a solid. So I can have gas lasers, liquid lasers, and solid state lasers. The modern generation is not to do so much, well, we still do a lot with these crystals uh, for lasers as well, but moving towards the light-emitting diodes where they're small little microelectronic devices that can be made to uh, lace, but they're also solid state, but, but of a different nature because of the nature of the semiconductor physics that's going on in it. Okay. okay. Re ready, for, <coughs> ready for another one? Good afternoon. Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, John Nightingale speaking. I think everybody is aware of the potential for nuclear fission that is currently the technology in nuclear reactors. If that technology falls into the wrong hands, it can in fact lead to military, pur for military purposes, a nuclear bomb. 
And you, in fact, mentioned and referred to the hydrogen bomb, which, if I understand that correctly, is a form of nuclear fusion, which is what we've been talking about here today. So my question is, is there a potential for the processes that you've described today, if it fell into the wrong hands, could that be used for military purposes and the subsequent development of the equivalent of a hydrogen bomb? Thank you. Okay. No, I can state categorically that nobody's going to go out and build a fusion device to acquire weapons, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, and in fact, when I made reference earlier to the hydrogen bomb as a way of knowing that this inertial fusion works, what happens in the case of a hydrogen bomb is you literally have a fission explosion that provides the drive energy, x-rays, that take deuterium and lithium to heat it to an ignition temperature just to get some fusion events taking place at the center, but it's the fact that you've got this enormous fission bomb energy to give you enough to heat the temperatures, to acquire the temperatures in deuterium-lithium to make a fusion reaction start. But at the end of the day, that fusion reaction, it's neutrons again, the neutrons that come out of it go back out into the fission weapon part and they amplify the effect of the fission bomb destruction. So uh, what we call a hydrogen bomb is not a pure fusion bomb. It's a fusion-enhanced fission bomb, okay? So if you want fission bombs, you know, if you want them for your nefarious purposes, you don't need that more sophisticated version. You just want any dirty fission bomb. So fusion, standalone pure fusion, avoids all of that. You don't have this fission weapon around you. You don't end up multiplying its effect by you adding a few neutrons from fusion. The pure fusion event is strictly the isotopes of hydrogen giving you neutrons and helium and nothing else. And those don't go into any weapons making. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my name is Van Christou. Uh, I'd like to preface my remarks by thanking you, Alan, for coming uh, to this group. Um, we've had some very interesting speakers in the past, but... Uh, I think uh, never one that's been more applicable to the future of this province uh, in, in terms of our, our uh, getting behind everybody uh, because we've been so satisfied with our income from the oil patch uh, and our other resources across Canada. Um, the, the question that I'd like to ask is... Uh, you mentioned that hydrogen is one of the products of, of, uh, of fusion. And uh, do you see hydrogen as being a, the next a fuel that will be used uh, generally in, in our society, in, in our world, globally, for driving our automobiles, our, our air, aircraft, and, and uh, our factories, and, and warming our houses? Okay, uh, good question. And just to make sure that I distinguish between the hydrogen isotopes that are going into the making of fusion reactions from the hydrogen that we would want to use as a fuel for other things. So uh, we've got the fusion with isotopes of hydrogen, and now we're just getting energy and electricity out of that fusion reactor. Subsequently, then, you want to use that electricity and or the heat coming out of a fusion reactor to get the hydrogen out of water to become that transportable uh, uh, currency, if you will. And uh, the reason that fusion looks interesting for that, and then I'll go on from there, 
is that if we work with normal uh, processes for desalination <clears throat> uh, to get clean water, let alone electrolysis to get hydrogen out of water, uh, normally these are done at low temperatures. And so there is a certain inefficiency associated with using electrolysis to, to get hydrogen. If I have fusion temperatures, because these reactor systems would run at much higher temperatures than ordinary, most coal-fired, gas-fired, even fission-fired systems, with the higher temperature, you can actually run thermal, electrical, chemical, different processes that give you more efficiency in liberating the hydrogen. So with fusion as an underlying high-energy source, I can work then on getting hydrogen out of water to make it a transportable fuel, in quotes, um, that could feed into then the fuel cells. And in terms of where we're going with this, in fact, my, um, my imagining for a very long time has always been by mid-century, I see a world that runs with fusion, electricity, and hydrogen fuel cells as the integrated clean system for both the generation and the application of energy. Hydrogen fuel cells, of course, we can use them in cars as well as electricity in cars, and they can be used for stationary applications, fuel cells in heat and power and everything else in, uh, in buildings. So hydrogen fuel cells coupled with electricity and, and cars particularly, uh, you know, by mid-century, it'll be, it'll be electrical and, and uh, fuel cells that will be running most of the, uh, the mobile transport. So fusion can underwrite the whole thing. It's, it's an amazing combination, in fact, that could be realized. Yeah. <clears throat> Gary Stoffer here. It sounds like you have quite an uphill battle uh, as far as technology is concerned. Tell us about your uphill battle to try to get the various levels of government on board. <laughs> well, I wish I had an answer for that one. Um, uh, at the outset, uh, there's, there's two, two issues, two problems. Uh, we've been a fairly complacent society in Canada because we've been well-fortuned with uh, lots of good natural resources and been able to make a comfortable way of living. And in part, then, if you have to invest larger sums over longer periods, well, I'd rather take the easier way. Uh, the other, then, is given that this is decade or two-decade long uh, and election cycles are only four years, uh, there's an issue of how a response to the system will be. Nonetheless, there are always champions that emerge no matter where, and I've met some of these people in the past in government, both administratively and, and elected. Uh, so if you could ever just get the right person in the right office at the right time, I think the answer is you could make it go. Uh, but you need that, that right confluence of, of the right people at the right time. It's not easy, uh, and it is, and, you know, my argument is straightforward. Government has to be involved because if it's decade-long, industry isn't motivated to invest in that R&D that far in advance. When it gets to within five years, uh, they get more tightly coupled. But the longer range is a legitimate government expenditure. And all over the world, all the big fusion expenditures, and it's in the billions per year, it's all government funding in every country in the world. What you are finding, though, is that there are some businesses, and I'll give you an example of one in Japan. There's a large photonics corporation called Hamamatsu, and Hiruma was the founding president. It's completely family-owned. He's built it into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Uh, he's in his late 90s. His son has taken over, has the same philosophy. 
And his approach was, this fusion, an inertial fusion, is so important, I can't leave it to the government and, uh, and academics and everybody else to do it. I'm going to have to get involved myself. And he started a program in his company and building quite significant facilities to pursue it. But he takes a businessman approach in that case. The fusion energy is out here, but on the way there, if I could get neutrons out of smaller systems, I can use them for all kinds of things, material science, uh, medicine, and so on. So he sees a business plan developing, and he's prepared to put some, because it's totally privately owned, and he's got money, he can start investing now to realize some of those earlier ambitions on the way to the high-energy systems in the long run. That's a rare circumstance. There's another one like that, General Atomics uh, in the U.S., uh, they are a major contractor to the Department of Energy. They, they do all the target fabrication that goes to Livermore uh, for the experiments. In that case, they get all their funding from the Department of Energy to do this work of supplying the targets. But what they've done is, because it's a privately held corporation too, uh, and billionaires, they've started to invest so they could build an, a niche when the time comes to supply these targets. Uh, oh, just a question on that. I didn't say, given the rep rate of putting these targets into the fuel chamber, about 10 per second, if you ask how many of those things do you need a day in a fusion power plant, it's like a half a million to a million of them. If we're, talking, we're talking major fabrication into the hundreds of thousands of dollars per day just to p supply fuel pellets for one uh, thing. So this company has started investing to build their technology that apart from doing these one-off targets to Livermore, they could actually then gather a niche in the long run for supplying major commercial uh, numbers of targets. So there's a few little opportunities like that that are slowly emerging, but it tends to be just deep-pocketed individuals who are saying, I want to buy in for what I know is coming in the fusion future. But other than that, the general R&D, as I say, is totally government-funded worldwide because we're, we're the one and two decades away from where we have to be. My name is Don Ryan, and um, I have many questions about this, um, the, your talk. Um, thank you for uh, helping to describe a little bit of the procedure here. Uh, my question basically is um, financial. You've introduced this, the money aspect of it. Um, Yesterday morning on uh, the CBC, there was a financial uh, consultant who was uh, give us the information that the uh, federal and the provincial governments both contribute $14.5 billion a year to the oil industry. How much is your project going to cost us? Okay. There's two levels you could tackle it. I'll give you the big picture, the one I think we should aim for. Uh, and then what we could do is subsidiary to that. Uh, as Livermore undertook this life planning as instructed by DOE to don't wait for the scientific demonstration, think about how you convert this into a power plant, uh, they did a lot of uh, risk management and engineering design analysis on that. And they supposed that to build that world's first demo plant would probably be about a $5 billion exercise. Now, I'm going to double that and say it's $10 billion. So let's take $10 billion as a nominal figure to do the world's first demonstration plant. 
question, what about if we ever had the chance to do that here in Alberta? In several respects, at the stage at which you'd go out to do that, you'd be looking for the private sector to do the major investment because at that time you know it's going to work. You have to go through the learning curves of building that first one and it won't be ideal, but you'll got to get all the learning experience behind you in doing it. It'd be private sector money putting the money into building that. And what I've always imagined is you'd have this central laser facility. At one end would be this target chamber to demonstrate the power output. And that you would work with Livermore that has got the most advanced technology. And I can come back to that. And at the other end, you'd work with your international partnerships to be looking at advanced concepts, generation two and three, that we know there are better ways to do it over what the first generation would be. Uh, so you could really couple activities, but think about it. We've been zero, basically, apart from the small academic research we've done here. We've been zero in the field. If you ever went out once to be the first demonstration site, you would become a leader because you would bring everything in, not just the cash, but the technology and all the related supply chain things that would feed into it, whether it be R&D, whether it be uh, computing, material science, materials, you name it, lasers. It would really be a very big driver of technology in this province if you ever undertook to do that. Why might it happen here? Well, in fact, we've had discussions for many years with Livermore, and they got interested in Alberta uh, in part because of the politics going on in the U.S. Uh, and in part because their regulatory process doesn't have the word fusion built into their nuclear regulatory regime where Canada does. So it's a much faster time frame, and that's money, of course, in anybody's ticket. It's a much faster process to do things in Canada than it is in the U.S. Thirdly, if you were looking, going out to do a demonstration capability where you want heat, as distinct from electricity, the oil sands could use heat from a clean source, what would be better than an ideal U.S.-Canadian link to do a world's first demonstration in Alberta so that the end game would be to have heat, clean heat, versus burning CO2 and steam reforming it to get the hydrogen out. You could do the hydrogen production. Fusion could be that interesting coupled things where we're moving through that uh, learning curve. We're giving heat that would be available for the oil sands in the long run, not to get it out as a burnable fuel, but to get it out for doing upgraded chemistry. That's where I want to see the oil sands going no longer a burnable fuel that adds to our greenhouse gas, but we get better value-added chemistry out of the carbon. And fusion can be a ticket on the way there. So there's this combination anyway, working with the U.S. as a possibility to, uh, to do that first demo. Backing up from there, if we didn't do it here, we could be building the infrastructure that we could be into the sub-technologies that have to go with what will become the future in fusion uh, systems. If, if I could butt in, uh, Alan, uh, perhaps we could help Don out with a number. Uh, how much is ITER costing? ITER's a $20 billion thus far, and it'll, it'll end up being... No, total. That's the total commitment. But it'll end up being more than that before it's finished. I suspect it's going to be more like $30 billion when it's finished. But this one would be an actual power demonstration coupled to the grid. Eater is not. It has to go and build another demo beyond that before it couples power to the grid. Next question. My name is Don Bengtson. Uh, thank you for your interesting talk. 
My question is somewhat tangential to the main subject, but you did mention that the Tokamak uh, design was built, or we've learned about it in the 1950s. It started in the 50s from the Russians, yeah. Yeah, and it was from the Russians. Uh, considering the state of relationships between the West and Russia at the time, how did we come to be in possession of the plans for such a device? In fact, uh, scientists are universal. They like to release their stuff to the world at large, and the Russians did too. And in fact, when they first, at one of the big international fusion meetings in the 50s, when they first announced they had this tokamak that was suddenly getting much higher temperatures than anybody else had ever achieved in a magnetic fusion experimental device, the West was very askance. So they arranged for a team to go and do some measurements in Russia to verify their claims. And that team I knew very well. It was headed by Nick Peacock, who was a scientist at Cullum uh, in the UK. I spent a sabbatical with him one time, in fact. Uh, but he took a team over to do a particular approach to measuring the temperature and found, indeed, it was correct what the Russians had claimed. And so the world just changed and started building tokamaks like mad. Yeah. It's a very interesting story. But, but they, uh, they released their results, so they weren't being secretive about it at all. This was on the heels, remember, out of the Second World War, the fusion concept was there, uh, but it was all classified. And then everybody, in, and especially the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, in the early 50s said, no, this is something that has to be declassified to get more progress. So the whole area of fusion got declassified at the time, and that led a few years later to these new things emerging then that everybody started following up on. Another question? Yeah, my name is Henning Mundel. As you're aware, two days ago we had an, a writ dropped in Alberta. You're talking about politicians and bureaucrats and so on. Over the years, though, that you've been involved in this, and now that you are emeritus, I hope the work's going on, which of the political parties is beating a path to your door? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's beating a path. No, we've, uh, and that's why these talks, and I've given a lot of invited talks to various nonprofit as well as government departments, academic, uh, you name it, and I'm willing to do more because it's only by education that people become aware, realize the possibilities, and then maybe as a larger community, the message gets through to the politicians to say, I guess we better do something about it. My, my fear now is that uh, that the world, it's going to happen. There's just no two ways about it. And as I say, Asia and Europe is driving fusion as an energy policy, not as a science project. The U.S. is still considering it a science project, uh, Canada nothing. But given that, that pressure, it's coming, and it's going to come sooner than we expect, and we're going to be suffering very mightily if we have not become part of it. And two ways, A, we're not going to be selling the oil and gas the same way, and for two, what about our next generation of, uh, you know, grandchildren and so on for jobs and careers? So this, this is very important. And it's so big, and it underwrites so much, uh, you know, whether it's sheer job numbers that can be created to the high tech and, and all the things. It's, it's got a wide uh, penetration, let's say, in societally. So it's, it goes beyond even technology and energy. It's, it's environment, it's economy, it's everything. We still have time for a question or two, so next question, please. 
Hi, I'm uh, Olivia Shinevich. Um, my question is around kind of the transmission and storage issues we face. Um, do you see this technology becoming stable enough and small enough that we can have like a generator or, or you know, pellets in our back pocket and our smartphone just drop <laughs> them in? And like, is that possible with this technology? No. Okay. Uh, fusion works best in big plants. Now, that's not to say you can't build slightly smaller plants, but it loves the 1,000 megawatt, okay, and that's where the economics really look good. Uh, you could build, you could think of building 100 megawatt plants, but the cost per kilowatt hour is going to go up. But you'll never build small systems for cars or anything else in your back pocket. But there's other uh, uh, factors that come in. Because this is so clean, you could put a fusion plant right in the middle of your city. You could then use the reject heat for local public purposes and so on, for one. For two, you could then get around all the transmission line issues. Uh, if we're going to go into desalination in a big way, you can build these plants along the ocean frontage and have the electricity where you need it to do the work and so on. So there's, there's other attributes. So we'll use our solar diffusion otherwise for the smaller things that we can wherever we can. But if you need larger base load in cities, industry, and so on, then the fact that you could put a clean fusion plant right in the middle. I mean, it, you know, people in Calgary, Edmonton, here even, you're smaller, but wouldn't like to have a fission plant right in the middle of their city. But you could have a fusion plant and no hazard. <clears throat> one, more, one more question, Robert. My name is Robert Smith. You mentioned tritium is not naturally occurring, so where is the tritium coming from? Uh, well, it, it, the stuff, Canada is one of the biggest suppliers of tritium, believe it or not. When they go to fire up Eater, uh, when that comes online uh, in 2028, uh, there isn't enough in the world supply to supply the tritium to fire it up. Canada will be a major supplier, and others will be gearing up to uh, produce it. Uh, but you can produce it from deuterium. It's basically a, a production scheme to get the tritium from an isotope you already have. Uh, but but you're faced with that necessity. In the case of the fusion plant cycle, as I mentioned, you could use neutrons plus lithium to give you the tritium and more helium. Uh, but it has to be it has to be made. Its 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 decay life is about 12.3 years, and that's why that's sufficiently short that the tritium any tritium that gets naturally produced and there is some. There's always these nuclear events going on, but the little bit that's produced it decays away so that it's it's no longer with you after a short time. So you have to make it and use it before it decays away. Okay. Well, uh, thanks very much for your great presentation, Alan. And I'd like...